Welcome to Tax Transparency Talks, a new EY podcast. In the first five episodes, we will look back at the introduction of the first two big automatic exchange of information regimes, the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, or FATCA, and the Common Reporting Standards, known as CRS. Reflecting upon our experience, we will discuss everything that we went through while implementing these regimes and what lessons we can take forward as new regimes are introduced. We will also look at the challenges facing tax authorities and clients, and we'll dive into how technology and data plays an increasing part in compliance with these regimes. Welcome everyone to the second episode in our short series of podcasts that look at VATCA and CRS, or AOI if you prefer, and how it all came about and how industry and tax authorities went about implementing the regimes. The series will finish with a look at what lessons can be taken forward to new regimes such as crypto asset reporting, which you may have heard of. In this episode, we look at how EY responded and supported clients with FATCA implementation. I will now hand you over to our host, James Guthrie. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the second episode in our short series of podcasts that look at FATCA and CRS reporting. I'm James Guthrie, a tax partner at EY in London, and I'm joined by a number of my colleagues today to take part in the discussion. We're going to take a look at how things unfolded at the time, uh, how clients went about uh, tackling the challenges that were out there and, and how they built compliance models. And we're going to finish with a look at some of the learning points that we can take from the way in which people complied and how they can be applied to some of the future regimes that are out there and coming down the track. So, for example, with crypto asset reporting. As I said, I'm joined today by three guests from EY. Each of them is going to share some of their insights into what they saw when they were working with clients at the time of FACRA implementation um, and just bring to life some of their experiences. So I'm joined by Amanda Murphy in our Dublin office, Andy Philbin and David Wren, who are both in our London office. Amanda, please could you just introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Amanda Murphy. I'm a tax partner in the Dublin office of EY, originally from New York and part of the firm's initiative to build out the information reporting regime as a business line following the tier one status by the IRS, which eventually led me to Europe because the laws became extraterritorial. Great to be here. Thanks, Amanda. Andy? Hi, everyone. Yeah, uh, Andy Philbin, a partner in our tax technology and transformation team. Um, actually, at the time when FATCA was starting to become a reality, I was part of our financial services advisory or consulting kind of practice. So not a tax specialist as such, um, but I do recall actually quite vividly this rather strange looking kind of email arrived in my inbox, um, uh, you know, referring to something called FATCA, didn't know anything about it. And in a moment of curiosity, um, I did a bit of research and started to read up on the rules and uh, to a degree, you know, the rest is history. Thanks, Andy. And finally, David. Hi, everyone. Uh, so David Wren, I'm based uh, here in EY London as well. Um, I, I just got back from uh, secondment to the same consulting team that Andy was in uh, when uh, FATCA was first announced back uh, in, in the early 2010s, uh, which stood me in very good stead then for working uh, across our tax and consulting practice uh, and helping a lot of clients uh, to get ready for FATCA and, and ultimately for the common reporting standard as well. Uh, in the intervening years, I've also spent some time out with industry bodies working on tax policy and uh, a lot of conversations about this from uh, that side of the fence as well. So let's get going. If we can just maybe set the scenes, uh, if we think we're, we're sort of 10 years ago, 
the US had published the FATCA regulations, and obviously that had got the attention of the world. If we fast forward um, a few months from that, we'd had a number of model IGAs that had been discussed and agreed. And in particular, the UK had moved quickly to sign theirs with the US. So this this conceptual um, thing that had come out of the US was now a reality in the form of domestic legislation. And I think that even those clients maybe and in the market who'd perhaps been doubtful that things would move forward, obviously, as the IJ was signed, were able to engage with this and realize that this was becoming a reality. So people had moved from reflective mode to engagement mode and were starting to think about how they would implement FATCA um, and build their compliance model. So maybe, Andy, if I could come to you first, could, could you just paint a picture? How, were, how was EY reacting at the time and, and what were we doing internally to be able to gear up to help our clients with this? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, fairly quickly became apparent that FATCA was going to have quite a wide range of um, practical implications on operational processes, customer data, you know, technology potentially. So really needed to kind of combine the tax technical expertise and interpretation with, uh, you know, basically kind of people who, who knew their way around um, yeah, uh, scrutinizing kind of data and designing processes. Um, and probably at, at the time, this type of sort of close collaboration kind of joint working was pretty novel, actually, between, you know, tax and our kind of broader, you know, consulting kind of teams as well. And it's proved to be a really good good blueprint for how to approach, you know, comparable regimes and challenges, et cetera. So, um, so that's a sort of broader point, but more, more specifically in terms of um, supporting clients. I mean, at a sort of macro level, the sort of objective was to uh, advise clients on how best to navigate um, to meet meet the compliance obligations, but in a proportionate and pragmatic and, of course, cost-effective way. Um, our typical kind of first intervention was to undertake a kind of rapid readiness or impact assessment, um, really with the idea of um, isolating where to concentrate efforts and, as it's sort of implied in the title, where the areas of greatest impact will be, be that on the in-scope kind of population, those with US and this year, uh, you know, relevant jurisdictions impacted, legal entities, et cetera. Um, also, maybe how processes were going to have to be modified, uh, for example, onboarding. Now, on, onboarding processes are not easy to to kind of um, change. Even even minor changes have to, have to go through, you know, a lot of design and sign-off because they're a sort of critical point of kind of customer contact, rather, obviously. Uh, but also um, helping clients document their their kind of thinking and assumptions and positions, particularly as the rules are evolving as well and having that sort of audit trail. So lots of really kind of practical things. And I think these um, readiness assessments were a really useful way of kind of helping to set out what tasks should basically do now versus do later, essentially, and which were more optional. So, you know, a very, very kind of, uh, you know, sensible first move. Thanks, Andy. And as you say, I think that, you know, the blueprint phrase is something I recognize because fundamentally it's, it's become the blueprint for how we dealt with latterly CRS and all, all number of regimes that have come into play since then, which is realizing that this is very much a, a tax issue and a piece of tax legislation, but really it impacts all areas from right at the front office through to the back office in our clients. And, and it really needs an understanding of how you implement and operate these kind of changes. So, Amanda, maybe just, just thinking a little bit about that. Obviously, FATCA itself was a, a piece of, a, a broad piece of legislation. And it, and it, 
encompassed huge areas of the financial sector. So whether it's banks, custodians, uh, private equity, trusts, insurers, wealth managers, the list goes on. How did you, as you looked out across the financial services landscape and all the constituents, um, you know, players within the market, how, how did you reflect on that? And how, how did you go about making sure that each of the, the different areas of the financial sector w- were able to kind of get, get the advice they needed? Because although there's a lot of commonality to it, not everyone was going to be impacted in the same way. No, I totally agree. And I think if we can kind of um, focus on what yourself and Andy were just saying, in a banking and insurance world, like the responsible officer could vary and the business units involved could vary so much across organizations. So you might have someone from the finance function or compliance or operations who is taking control. And in some cases, it may have moved on to data. Um, Sometimes AML function was involved. Sometimes they weren't from the onboarding change perspective. And so it was very different across the board. And then, you know, moving into the funds world, as you're as you're saying, there's <clears throat> obviously a hugely different uh, business model there where outsourcing is more prevalent and there'd be multiple third parties involved and, you know, getting the stakeholders aware of what was happening and roles and responsibilities delineated was a huge challenge for the funds world and quite frankly still is um, so, yeah, I think just definitely the approach is different um, right from the start in terms of corralling the various stakeholders, uh, making sure they understand, and then working alongside the likes of a fund manager to communicate with uh, administrators and um, making sure that the, the actual practical approach makes sense within the construct of that organization. And it can look quite different depending on the business model that's at play. Thanks, Amanda. And I mean, just picking up on one of those points, because I think it's this difficulty point. So, I mean, David, from your perspective, were you surprised at the level of difficulty that that people were encountering? Because, I mean, at at its heart, it is a fundamentally simple question that that the FATCA legislation um, poses, which is, do you have US account holders. So uh, on one level, very simplistic. On the other hand, obviously not so. Uh, Did did people find it, you think, more challenging than expected? And if so, do you think the challenge lay in the places they perhaps originally thought it might? Yes, I I think it's it's interesting because it sounds like such a simple question. Uh, You know, just tell me who's a a US person or not. Uh, And I think certainly in the very early days after the the, the higher act had passed, but before we had regulations and, and IGAs and, and everything else, there was a lot of speculation on on exactly what that meant. You know, w- would it would it mean that if someone came in and had an American accent, we had to suspect they were American and and, and report them? Uh, the London mayor at the time and, and future prime minister Boris Johnson, you know, was 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 famously born in the US and you know was often used as an example of someone who actually may well be a US citizen and and didn't know about it or or banks would need to be able to spot it or, or, or other kind of things as well. Um, and so certainly in the early days, there was a lot of uncertainty about what that meant in practice. Uh, and then, of course, uh, yeah, and I think perhaps with the benefit of hindsight as well, it quickly became apparent that nobody was particularly kind of capturing this data in a, in a way that they could go back and, and 
and look at look at it um you know you might know that someone was born in the us but that wasn't necessarily stored in a way that you could you could electronically search it and and and, and put it through uh you know certainly whether or not someone had for example presented a us passport uh during the kind of kyc process and you know, nothing like that was 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 being captured at all um and so certainly you know certainly i think with the uh, with the benefit of of kind of 10 years of hindsight i think it's definitely quite easy to say that it's a, a lot harder uh, than than you would expect to get this um you know at the time it sounded like a very easy question and and you know james you'll remember and andy as well you know we spent a lot of time internally telling people that this was was going to be a problem for 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 everyone and for our clients before um before we really uh, uh, got traction with 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 that idea and and, and started people on the on the way to to compliance. Thanks, David. And you mentioned some of the challenges that people face there, uh, Amanda. What what did you see the main challenges as being in the early days? And maybe if we bring it back up to date, do you think those challenges have been you know met and solved, or, or do you see some of them as continuing now and, and being thematic throughout the intervening ten years of, of FATCA's lifetime? Sure, I think definitely the the challenges that I'm about to lay out definitely still exist in varying degrees. So as I spoke about earlier, I think accountability has been a challenge right from the start until now, the early days of just letting people know that this is something that they have to do. And to David's point, it's going to take a lot of change and it's not going to be easy, even though it seems easy. Um, so again, that still seems to be an issue. And, and in terms of the accountability, I think it stems from the fact that there hasn't been enough focus put on governance and controls being put in place to start with and, you know, kept up to date as things have uh, changed over time and new AEOI regimes have been added in. So making sure that those, you know, procedures are up to date, trainings are um, current and that there's checks in place on an annual basis to ensure that compliance uh, matters are being met. So that's definitely one area of governance. There's two more I'll mention briefly. The second is manual processes and lack of capable technology. That is definitely an issue from the start that still seems to be sticking around to this day. Um, and the third is then on, on the data itself. So there's a lot of legacy data issues. Data is not necessarily kept up to date. And there's obviously these laws came into place um, going back to 2014 for FACA. And there would have been data in place uh, in the in the organization before then that um, may have had issues with it. So certainly remediation of data um, has been a big problem from the start and still continues to remain as well. Thanks, Amanda. And I guess just reflecting on one of those points, because uh, historically, you know, when I think about tax legislation, this was often the compliance for it was often owned primarily by the tax function and, and compliance was a discrete um part of what they did and it could be done alongside the kind of day-to-day -day operations of the business Andy, if we think about FATCA, is it fair to say that you know this this had a much broader impact and, and it touched upon many many more areas of an institution so it wasn't just a, a sort of a neat bit of tax compliance that fell out of the bottom but it was it was really something that sort of permeated, you know, throughout all areas of the organization, um, just in terms of having to pull together and, and discharge compliance sorry, and discharge compliance obligations. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, I think that's um, 
absolutely the case. It certainly did. Um, and yeah, re really meant kind of tax had, had to reach out to perhaps areas of business that hadn't needed to previously, or certainly not not to this extent. And yeah, some things already talked about in terms just the nature of having to systematically obtain, assess, and document the status of customers and and, and um, decide whether they needed to be reported or not. Um, obviously, you know, required an awful lot of work to basically obtain that data, which, you know, in some cases was pretty mixed, pretty old, make sure it was up to date and accurate, etc. So some kind of remediation of that. Um, and, you know, just, just to give an example or two, then, um, you know, this, this sort of impacted, um, you know, directly the sort of client handlers, relationship managers of our clients. So, um, and obviously, there's quite a lot of sensitivity, really, around the types of queries that might come through would this damage the relationship with our clients and end customers um how should they explain it etc so even from a basic communication perspective there was you know messaging and uh, sensitivity that we had to deal with as well as the day-to-day -day task if you like of making sure all the data and information that we were gathering was complete and accurate and could be used and then that also kind of flowed through to when it was um ready to be reported to you know ultimately to, to tax authorities you know to absolutely make sure that um, the information that was was mandatory was being reported but but also it was right and no one was being misreported so quite onerous quite a lot of broad kind of stakeholders um yeah and uh, you know a reason about a risk involved actually so it was super important to have the right controls and governance as, as has already been mentioned in place Thanks, Andy. And you mentioned data there. Um, so maybe just thinking now about data and technology, David, you know, we know that this is ultimately, you know, the basis of solution, but initially anyway, to, to what extent do you think data and, and the technology that it lived within was also part of the problem? Because it, it feels to me like, what seems like the go-to solution for something like this wasn't quite um, an easy tool to pick up, if you like, and, and people grappled with those kind of issues. So, um, yeah, you know, grateful for your thoughts in terms of how, how you felt the data and tech journey has evolved for people in the market. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it, you know it, it's easy to forget that, particularly when we were looking at FATCA, but with with CRS as well. Uh, everyone from a tax side was learning about technology at, at the same time. And so, yeah, from a tax authority perspective, we, di we didn't quite know what we were working towards. We didn't know what the final reports were going to look like. We didn't quite know what the data was going to be. Um, you, you know, the, the, the XML schemas that we now know and, and love as part of the kind of reporting, yeah, all of, all of that had yet to be defined and, and, and wasn't really there. So we were trying to work out a data model that would satisfy the regulations and, and try and work out, you know, and anticipate what tax authorities were going to request from us. We didn't really know what we were, what we were working towards. Um, and, and, and certainly at the time that was, a, a big challenge from a technology perspective. You know, there wasn't a great deal of flexibility in the approaches. You know, it, everything would have to be, or it was going to be kind of hard coded. You know, there, there weren't quite some of the data analysis tools that we have today that, that can be a lot more kind of flexible in, in, in their approach. So, so everything had to be kind of predetermined, predefined. You know, there were kind of 18 month lead times for changes to client onboarding systems and, and then the data kind of processing behind all of that. 
um, yeah, and compared to some of the regimes that we see coming through today, so you know we've got DAC seven and 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 CSOP, the the European Payments Reporting Regime, both kind of very much front of mind for a lot of organisations. You know, DAC eight on cryptocurrency and money, not not far away. You, you know, for for the, for regimes coming through today. We often start with the data model. You know, we, we we know exactly what the tax authorities are trying to get to, and we can work backwards from from that. Um, and and that's a, a a much better approach all round in terms of you know both certainty and also then being able to design and 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 develop a solution. Thanks, David. And and just you know picking up one of those themes there, which is just thinking about kind of you know responsibility and and governance around this. It's probably fair to say when FATCA came in, um, it was a little bit of a hot potato and it, and it didn't naturally sit in any one area of financial institutions. So was it tax? Was it operations? Was it regulatory compliance? Now, there was obviously a lot of discussion at the time. That, that's some years ago now. So what what is it that you think FATCA has, has kind of taught from an institutional learning perspective in the way in which institutions have to team within themselves, much like we teamed within EY and brought together advisory, tax and technology. What, what do you think the learning points there are for financial institutions um, in terms of you know future pieces of legislation that might be coming down the line that, that are FATCA-esque in the need to comply? Yeah, I mean, and, and I think we, we've seen the same problem kind of recur lots of times uh, over, over the uh, the last 10 years since we did FACA CRS. So, you know, when we when we saw things like the corporate criminal offence of tax, uh, facilitation of tax evasion here in the UK, uh, you know, a lot of the work we did around things like mandatory disclosure and, and DAC6 and, and now again with, with, with kind of future regimes. Uh, and also I think our indirect VAT colleagues kind of have, have a similar sort of issue, which is, you know, how, how do you split the ownership between something which is uh, – Tax-led, um, yeah, and, and and ultimately results in reporting to tax authorities, but but really is nothing to do with the traditional role of of tax in terms of paying the organisation or its employees taxes. You know, it's all, all to do with the, the the tax on 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 customers. Um, you know, I think you, you, one of the questions you're often asked is, you know, is there is there a kind of obvious solution to that problem? Um, and and I think the answer and you know standard kind of consultant's answer is it, you know it, it all depends. Um, there you know there is a very clear answer I think to what we see in terms of successful programs, which is there is a joint venture between tax and between business and between uh, IT technology you know uh, operations functions where every everyone learns a little bit more about the the kind of other domains. You know tax people learn a lot more about technology, a lot more about operations, operations. And, and payments uh, colleagues learn a lot more about tax, you know, whether they want to or not. Um, and, and I think most of the projects we've seen that have have really succeeded uh, have have resulted in that kind of joint venture between between the different teams. But but, but that's hard to sustain post implementation. You know, uh, within a, within most organisations, people's objectives, their scorecards, you know, ultimately their kind of reporting lines. Tend to tend to go back kind of up to, to to one level, be that tax or the business or compliance and operations, um, and so we we do see it as a sort of perennial problem. I think in terms of how do you ensure that 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 joint venture is is sustained and and you continue to get the the right involvement from 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 a lot of different people. Um, yeah, and of course we've seen 
uh, yeah, the growth of, of kind of dedicated tax operations, dedicated uh, tax people out in the business uh, who are helping to deliver all of this. And, and certainly in a lot of organizations, that, that does seem to be uh, the only way to make sure that this continues to get the, the, the input and oversight that it needs. Thanks, David. And I think the theme I'm picking up there is when you've got a number of different areas within an organization pulling together to deliver um, a, a, a sort of a co-joined compliance solution, effective project management is absolutely crucial. So the left hand knows what the right hand is doing and people are pulling together. Andy, you know, we obviously worked together closely at the time. C- can you just tell us a little bit about the type of work that, that you know you and we were doing to support clients in this area? Yeah, and sure. I think it's probably fair to say that people have um, varying views as to the role and in some cases sort of need for kind of project management. But um, but really, when you think about this, with, with, with a complex set of new obligations, loads of practical challenges, uh, shifting deadlines, and you know that was definitely a feature of kind of CRS. Um, having a sort of clear plan and critical path of you know the milestones was absolutely essential. Otherwise, things would you know, were under risk of unraveling kind of pretty pretty quickly. And also, as deadlines um, approach, then obviously you know putting those at risk essentially. So, so I think yeah, have, having that capability in place kind of really really important. But obviously, pitch at the right level. Um, you know, we've probably all been there where there's been a project plan with hundreds of lines on it, and it looks very good on day one, but you know is rarely referred to after that. So, so it has to be kind of usable um, and um, you know practical as well. Um, and also, I'd say the um, um, you know the most effective type of project management is where those involved have a genuine affinity with and a good working knowledge of the of the rules and content as well, rather than uh, perhaps more purely just sort of monitoring progress and checking what others are doing. I think that you know applies more broadly as well. I think that's a you know a key part of being a, a good project manager is that you you know you know a a a pretty good amount uh, about the actual kind of content that's uh, kind of relevant to your particular project. Thanks, Andy. And then maybe, you know, penultimate question for me, you know, in all this discussion, we obviously need to remember that ultimately it is the the clients, the customers of financial institutions who it's incumbent upon to be able to give information to, to the financial institutions on which decisions are being made. And I'm particularly thinking, you know, there was a whole lexicon of acronyms and terms that were introduced to us by the legislation. Uh, Amanda, from from your side, and, you know, looking back now, do you think there was enough done? Do you think too much, too little by way of the onboarding process? Do, do, do you think, would you do things differently now, reflecting back? Because I know that was one of the key challenges here, which is it's easy to say what you've got to get from customers, but if customers don't understand what they're being asked and having to provide, then it's going to make things very difficult to gather the data that you need. Yeah, and I think this does, um, this has and still does cause a lot of confusion with customers because we're talking about a lot of times just regular people coming into a bank, opening up a bank account that know nothing about tax transparency. Um, but there's obviously ways to streamline the questions. I think we've all learned along the way that the way you position the questions in your self-certifications to customers can make the process a little bit smoother. Understanding your customer base and 
um, formulating the questions in a way that would most likely be understood by them, you know, pointing them in the direction where they can get help from someone I know. Uh, one of one of the clients that I worked with actually set up a separate team to facilitate answering calls on customers that didn't have any knowledge of what FATCA was. And, um, you know, it was just a short-lived team, but it, it went a long way to show customers that they understood that they, you know, were finding this very difficult and that while they couldn't provide tax advice, they could at least hold their hand a little bit. But I think ultimately these tax transparency regimes are forcing customers and just lay people in general to become more savvy about the increasing t- uh, transparency and regulation in the glo- global economy in which we live. And, you know, we don't see that slowing down. So unfortunately, we're, we're kind of all being forced to get a little bit smarter about this stuff. Yeah, thanks, Amanda. And I think that that theme of, you know, lessons learned as we, you know, have a retrospective is something we're going to touch on in the next podcast, which we're going to do, which is basically what, what lessons can we take from FATCA and ultimately CRS um, as we look to build compliance for some of the future regimes that are coming down the pipeline. So can I ask each of you in turn, um, what would the one area where you think clients should focus on when having to comply with some of these regimes? Maybe, uh, sorry, Amanda, I'm going to pick on you. How about you first? Sure, no problem. I think definitely the piece around accountability and stakeholder awareness is what I would point people towards. If we can get that bedded down as quickly as possible, you have a much better route to success once you have the right people involved who feel accountable for you know making sure that the changes that need to occur are actually in motion. David? Yeah, I, I, I think a lot of it comes down to data um, and, and not just the kind of uh, the, the data that's actually subject to the reporting, you know, the, how can you kind of get that through from uh, through, from from systems through to, to to the tax authority, but 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 also really understanding how that data comes into the organisation, where it goes, who's who's changing it. Uh, you know, I think time and time again, when we see things go wrong for people, uh, it's because of something upstream that has uh, changed the way that the data is 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 coming through to the reports and means that things are. Uh, being excluded from reports incorrectly or, or reported incorrectly and, and 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 other other kind of issues like that so really understanding not just the the data itself but the kind of whole data landscape data lineage i think is is critical thanks david andy yeah actually i mean as i say i'm from our tax technology team so probably kind of rightly a bit biased at that i'd certainly agree with all all the comments made and you know building a bit on on kind of david's comments as well i mean you know Pretty much everything starts with um, uh, and and ends with a flow of data, you know, from sourcing to reporting as well. Obviously, there are rules and logic to apply to that data in terms of what you end up doing with it. But, uh, you know, getting that right and being as efficient as possible with it is absolutely critical. And also technology's moved on, you know, at a real pace, as you'd expect, since, um, you know, FATCA became a reality. So there's some really kind of useful, not too hard to use type tools, which can make everyone's life easier. And... Also, I think you know tax specialists have moved a, a long way as well as a, you know even by nature this conversation you know data process technology it's come up a lot and I'm not sure that would have been the case if we'd been uh, having a comparable conversation you know 10 15 years ago. 
Brilliant. Thanks, Andy, David, and Amanda. Your contribution today has been incredibly helpful. Hopefully, those listening have enjoyed the discussion that we've had. Uh, Do join us for our next podcast, which will be coming out shortly. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you.